This is Paul speaking. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace is a slippery thing. It's kind of like holding a wet bar of soap. Sometimes it seems like we have it and sometimes it gets out of our hands. Our awareness of our own failures and the failures of our world and those around us can easily cause grace to slip out of our hands. In one of his lectures in Galatians, Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation of the Church in the 16th century who gave birth to the Protestant wing of the Christian church, said this, I know how I sometimes struggle in the hours of darkness. I know how often I suddenly lose sight of the rays of the gospel and of grace, which have been obscured for me by thick, dark clouds. In other words, I know how slippery the footing is even for those who are mature and seem to be firmly, firmly established in the matters of faith. Even though we believe in the grace of Christ and have long worshipped and followed him sometimes, we can still easily lose sight of all that Christ has done for us. We can easily start to spiritually mope about uh, how bad a Christian we are, how God must be so disappointed at us, how weak and inadequate our faith is, or we discount the grace of God for those we see around us who may be far 
away and opposite from God. I struggle with it. I'm sure you do. And that is why Galatians is a good book for us. We are slowly, passage by passage, verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase, methodically going through this letter because we need to be reminded of the essence of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the depth of grace. The first two chapters of Galatians are largely Paul's spiritual autobiography. What is your spiritual autobiography? I mean, when did God first become real to you? And what are the struggles and the blessings in your coming to faith? Who were the people that you encountered who helped form you? What uh, events were significant? Where have you come from? Where are you now? Where do you hope to be? Paul spends so much time laying out his own spiritual autobiography because there are people who are doubting him. There are people who are doubting the message that he was proclaiming. There were questions about whether Paul could be trusted. And truth be told, it wasn't unreasonable to be suspicious of Paul. And he links the veracity, the truth of the gospel message that he proclaims to his new converted, changed life. Now, before he was Paul, many of us know he was Saul. He was a violent persecutor of the church. His goal was to destroy the church. When Stephen, the first deacon of the church and the first martyr in Christianity, was killed for his faith, as he was being put to death, we read in Acts, it says, Paul was looking on and approving of it. And people laid their coats at the feet of Paul as a sign of support, as a sign of honor of what he was doing. And we read that Paul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. What does that look like? Paul was carrying out a scorched earth policy on Christians. And he was on another hunting trip for Christians, having secured permission from the Jewish high priest that if he could find any men or women who belonged to what was called the way, before it was called Christianity, it was called the way, if he could find any of them, then he could bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it was on that journey that he was confronted by the living risen Lord himself. In Acts chapter 9, we read, that a light flashed around Saul and it blinded him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice speak to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the voice responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this led to a powerful and it led to a very rapid conversion where Saul's life was turned inside out his heart emptied of all the bitterness and the hatred and the rage that had uh, caused him to suppress the name of Jesus and become not only one of his followers, but to become an apostle and a proclaimer of the message of Christ. It was not an easy process because people did not trust this man who became known as Paul. 
And when he began to preach Jesus, instead of trying to kill those who belonged to Jesus, people heard him and they said, is this not the man who was making havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoke his name? And they thought he was faking it in order to spy out Christians so that he could indeed arrest them. But Paul was a changed man, and now he was an instrument of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things about the way Paul, in this text this morning, speaks about his own conversion. First, he doesn't try to cover up his past or all the horrific stuff. He admits it. He owns up to it. Because it's also part of the power of his story. You know, some of us may have things in our past that we were just soon weren't there. Things maybe we're ashamed of, uh, that we're glad we've left those things. And we just don't even mention them. But as Eugene Peterson wisely said, in the story of a changed life, nothing is wasted. Our former lives are raw material that is used in the work of art that is freedom. That which took place in the years before our acceptance of Christ's love is not rejected, but used. Nothing is wasted in the free life of faith. God wastes nothing in our lives. The marks on our record, our struggles, can be testimonies of his grace. And then second, notice how Paul says this transformation happened. Notice very carefully, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. His transformation was all God. He didn't say, uh, when I decided to become a Christian. He doesn't say, well, when I accepted Christ, but when God, in His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. God's grace, God's pleasure, God's revealing. Our coming to Christ, however that may happen, and there are a thousand ways people come to Christ is an act of God's grace. Who we are, who we are becoming, who we will be in the Lord Jesus Christ is by His grace. Paul even understood his calling to be from the time he was in his mama's womb. God has designs on us long before we even know. In Ephesians it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love to the praise of His glorious grace. And we try to get our minds around that. If it was about us trying to find God, then it would be a work. It would be something we could boast about. It wouldn't be His grace. God doesn't just start moving in our lives once we uh, get clear on His Son. He is moving even before then, in spite of whatever resistance or rebellion or apathy or cluelessness that we might have. So don't see your Christian life as necessarily starting with your understanding and your comprehension of it. I know we're often led to believe that it's up to us to seek and to pray and to work and to put forth the effort and eventually come to God on our own. 
There's a lot of mystery in how this works. And why some seem to understand God's revealing to them much more clearly or faster or easier than others can't always be accounted for. I can't always account for it. However, God, however, God chooses to do it, though, it is always by his grace. And that should give us a certain freedom. Because the burden of knowing Christ isn't necessarily on us. It isn't necessarily about getting with the right program like a diet plan. God comes to us. He finds us. He reveals himself to us by his good pleasure, by his grace. Let's be thankful. Let's be thankful. Paul's reason for going into such length about his life and about his conversion and about his experience is this. He knows people are telling the Galatians that he's just making this message up. Paul says, though, look, you know what I was like. How do you explain that I would go from being a killer of Christians to being one myself? What else could bring about such a radical change than a message that is the real deal and that I have really seen, I have really heard Christ? I'm not making this up. Paul wants them to know there's no way he could have made this up given who he was. Nothing could account for the change of, of him other than a supernatural encounter with Christ himself. And so the message he proclaimed wasn't given to him by people, nor did he have any teachers. He claims it came from a direct revelation from Christ himself. And he then describes his years after his conversion. Instead of rushing to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles to get educated by them, he says he went by himself to Arabia for three years. Now, we get no details about what he did there. We get no details about what happened there. But it seemed to be a period of learning, of grooming, of formation, and it was only after that time that he says he met with the apostles, and that only for brief times. So insistent is Paul on his story that he makes a plea for their belief, and he says, what I am writing to you is no lie. Now, we don't know how he received it. We don't know what he saw. We don't know how Christ made it known to Paul over that time. But Paul says he had a direct revelation from Christ himself. His teacher was the Lord himself. Now, how do we know the gospel is true? How do we know this message that we stake our lives on is the real deal? There are people who write and argue, well, it's really a myth. It was just made up out of the imaginations of the early Christians who put words into Jesus' mouth and, and made him out to be what they wanted him to be years after the fact. And that's quite a popular stance these days, and you'll read it and see it particularly in popular media. And I suppose you can believe it. But I think it was a lot for Christians to be arrested and tortured and lose their livelihood and sometimes their very lives for a lie that they made up. And a lot to propagate that message year after year, generation after generation, century after century. We believe this message is true because there are people who saw it happen, who told it, who heard it, who wrote about it. And we believe the testimony of the apostles like Paul. But another reason for believing this message is true is the changed lives of the people. Which is what Paul is arguing for in the latter chapter, latter part of this first chapter in Galatians. You know, I know 
some people, many people are turned off to Christianity because of the way those who claim to be Jesus followers live their lives. But conversely, people can be come to God because of the way Christians live our lives and the power of that. This week, I read a story by Matt Fitzgerald, who is a pastor of a St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Chicago. He told a story about when he was a young pastor and also an aspiring writer, a magazine hired him to go and do a story about God and faith and prison, and he had to go interview a man in Ohio who was on death row. This man was in his 21st year of waiting for execution for a brutal murder that he had committed. Matt Fitzgerald and this inmate sat right across the table from one another as they talked. The pastor wanted to know from this man who was a murderer what he thought about God. And he was very uncomfortable with the way this convicted man so easily spoke of God, particularly often speaking of God's mercy and grace. And Fitzgerald wasn't sure that he could trust what he was hearing. And that maybe this guy was just, you know, trying to use faith, kind of speaking Christianese to get people to think he was really changed. He suspected this man had too easily come by God's grace before realizing the weight of what he'd done. Kind of a cheap forgiveness. But when the pastor confronted him with this and called him on it, here's what the man on death row sitting there wearing chains said. The gospel requires us simply, not simply to be sorry, but it requires us to be transformed by our sorrow. And for me, this is a daily transformation. I'll never forget my crime. It is always deeply, deeply disturbing to me. But there has to come a point where you receive forgiveness and then you ref and then you forgive yourself, not in order to justify your actions, but in order to accept God's love. I'm not letting myself be restricted simply because I'm wearing shackles and handcuffs. I'm a person and I'm a person who is loved and forgiven by God. Fitzgerald was absolutely shocked that this man, this killer, was also a man who was loved by God. And when he heard him say these words, he was so shocked that he got up and he left the room. But as he left, he realized how bothered he was that this man on death row had claimed what he as a pastor had preached. This pastor was awakened to the fact that he'd spent a lot of time in his ministry trying to contain God's presence and that he had either forgotten or never learned that in all of this is God's grace, which is, he said, something that's out of control. The power of God, it's a surging and crackling energy, a wildness that the church hints at but doesn't own. And he was absolutely taken that a murderer would and could grab hold of the same love that he had been given. And he wrote, he'd claimed the love of God as his own, and that claim threatened me. I never would have guessed that the most unnerving thing I would encounter on death row was the grace of God. 
I suppose many a person had similar thoughts about Paul, who'd done plenty of damage, caused plenty of pain, and ruined many a life and many a family. Is the gospel of grace real? Is it something just made up? Paul insisted it wasn't. And he challenged people to look at him. And those who did look at him, it says, and they praised God. They knew this doesn't happen without a higher power, if you would. Someone greater, someone bigger, more operating, claiming, loving. There's a wildness on the loose, claiming and finding all kinds of people who don't deserve any of it, which isn't just the other guy or gal, but it might be you and I as well. Our conversion probably isn't radical as Paul's. Doubt it is. For some of us, our coming to faith has been very, very uneventful, very slow, uh, even, quite frankly, boring. How God reveals his son to us, whether through the slow pace and gentleness of a Sunday school teacher or a radical vision of himself, that's not the point. If part of the authentication of the gospel is a changed life, then each of us can stand as reasons for the truth of Christ. Like Luther said, he said, I know how often I suddenly lose sight of the rays of the gospel and grace, which have been obscured for me by thick, dark clouds. Well, may those clouds disperse. And may we see the grace of God in Jesus Christ each day for others and also for ourselves. We've had already some times of silent reflection this morning. Let's have one more time of silence to reflect on how we have heard or how we are hearing the Lord speak to us this morning and then we'll sing our final hymn.